This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. My guests are Larissa Garski and Justine Mastin. They are licensed marriage and family therapists. Larissa specializes in working with women, families, and young adults who identify as outside the mainstream, such as those in the geek and LGBTQIA plus communities. And Justine is also an adjunct instructor for marriage and family therapy graduate students at St. Mary's University of Minnesota and the University of Massachusetts Global. And together, they're the authors of Starship Therapies, using therapeutic fan fiction to rewrite your life, which we talked about a couple of years ago and had a lot of fun doing that. Oh, yeah. We had a ball. And their new book that we'll be talking about today is The Grieving Therapist. Caring for yourself and your clients when it feels like the end of the world. So, Larissa and Justine, I am so delighted to have you back on the Magical Mystery Tour. It's so great to be back. Thanks for having us, Tonio. And it's too bad it's under these uh, current circumstances, but uh, hopefully we'll have fun with it anyway. Absolutely. We did last time. So, I mean, I, I believe in our synergy and our magic. Yeah, it's not the absolute middle of the pandemic. So odds are you're catching us in a better mood, even if we're talking about grief. That's right. I kind of forgot, you know, what it was like back in the middle of the pandemic, even though we were talking about something that was a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. Well, Loris and I have spent the past year emotionally revisiting that time, the time of the pandemic, as well as a variety of other times wherein we individually or collectively as a society have experienced grief. So we understand how you may have put that away, but for us, it is very much in the forefront of our minds because that's what we were accessing in order to write this book. So you've effectively been exploring the history of grief in our society in a sense? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I also think that like I tend to be the big researcher of our dynamic duo between Justine and I. Mm -hmm. And so I operate on the 
perspective of like go big or go home. So <laughs> yes, I looked at our country, but then I also tried to like really zoom out and go global so much so that at some point during like the end of the research process, I remember getting a text from Justine and she was like, do you think, do you think maybe you've read enough books <laughs> about like grief and death and dying? Do you think like maybe it's time to like start transitioning? <laughs> Yeah, I was like, when's the last time you read something just for fun? And <laughs> and to be fair, the books Larissa chooses to read for fun would not be my picks. No, they do tend to have like a darker tone. Uh-huh, you know, yeah. like what, what were you reading recently, Dostoevsky? I, well, I just finished American Prometheus, which is what Oppenheimer is based off of. I finished that this weekend. And I texted you and I was like, I finished it and I cried for an hour. It was so great. And I think you wrote back, I'm really happy for you. <laughs> I love that. You know, I, I go for the deep stuff too. But, yeah. but I also like, I mean, for me, it's extremely, extremely rare to get to read something just purely for fun. Mm-hmm. Like maybe once a year or once every two years, I just finished a book that I read just for fun because I didn't think I would actually interview the author. Mm. But okay, then did you wind up it? interviewing the author? I haven't. I'm considering it, but I don't think it's going to happen. And the book was over 600 pages, too. Yeah. What was the book, Tonio? I'm very curious now. Uh, it's called The Madonna Secret. Oh, it's a historical fiction novel about Mary Magdalene and Jesus and that whole, you know, everything that was going on in that time period. And it's really wonderful. It's biblical fan fiction. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> it's amazing. I highly, highly recommend it. Let me write it down. The, the Madonna Secret. I always love a good book recommendation from a trusted source. And you definitely are a trusted source. Hmm. And I so rarely get to read novels. And I especially love historical fiction. And since you love history, I think, you know, marrying history and fan fiction is mm -hmm. like the perfect avenue to pure joy, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I love the dynamic duo thing with the two of you. I mean, that's so awesome. Thank you. We love our friendship, too. Honestly, it's the only way that I think we could have written this particular book. Our first book had a lot more lightness and brightness. I mean, it certainly had serious stuff too, but it also had like delightful like yoga characters, you know, and this book didn't quite have that. So I don't feel like I could have gotten through writing this book all by myself. I think that would have been an impossible journey to make alone. Yeah. And what is wonderful, in addition to just, I don't know, how our personalities mesh, even though in many ways we are extremely different humans, we are both therapists. And so that was very helpful on this journey. We were able to show up for each other. We're not each other's therapists, of course, but we do have those skills to be able to recognize, you know, oh, I think my platonic life partner needs a break. or. Right. She doesn't seem okay. <laughs> or, you know, during the writing of this book, because it was so experiential for us as authors, we would often tap into our own emotional experiences and, you know, re-grieve. The losses that we've been through personally. Right. And so we really, we had to hold space for each other to experience 
moments of grief, weeks of grief, and our friendship and the fact that we are both very skilled clinicians were vital in that process. Mm -hmm. Because there was more than one occasion when Larissa was like, I don't think we can finish this book. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is just too hard. We are feeling too many pains. And then I got COVID. I mean, I didn't want to, like, write it in the beginning, you know? Oh, right, yeah. Why don't, like you, this, why don't you share that with the people? Yeah, I mean, the, the way we came about writing this book was that we'd done our first book with our fabulous editor, Shana Keels, who works at North Atlantic Books. And they had come to us, I think, what was it, maybe, like, six months after Starship had been, like, launched and published and, like, out in the world. Um, and they were like, have you thought about writing another book? which was wonderful and exciting. So we got together some ideas, pitched Shayna many. And I think of the many we pitched, there was only like two two, <laughs> two that Shayna was excited about. And I don't even know if this was on the list, but I think after we had like sent the list and we had a meeting, she asked us, uh, have you ever thought about writing about grief? in the context of being a therapist. I feel like a lot of people are going through that right now. You're going through that right now. And that immediately sparked something for Justine. And what it sparked for her was joy. And what it sparked for me was dread. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I just had a sense of how challenging it was going to be to write about that while we were simultaneously in grief. Yeah. So what were the other two? I'm just curious. One was a book about internal family systems, which is a style of therapy that Larissa and I practice. And we actually do intend to write a book about that in the future, but we just didn't Mm -hmm. feel quite ready to tackle that one yet. Yeah. And then I think the other one was about about yoga. yoga. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm also a yoga teacher at this point, kind of in name only. I've been a certified yoga instructor since 2010. But I don't really teach yoga asana anymore because I am doing all these other things. Well, you're like, you're in your sage era, you know, where like yes. if people seek you out and they want to like consult with you happy or to learn consult. from you, you're happy to do that. Mm-hmm. But you're not like out in the world actively teaching in that Right. Way. You're not going to find me at a yoga studio mm-hmm. teaching a class and collecting money. <laughs> no. But at the time when we were pitching, I was still feeling like there was something about yoga I wanted to say. And I'm feeling less like I need that now. And even by the time Shayna was like, yeah, this sounds cool. Let's do it. I was like, eh. yeah, <laughs> I don't know that I want to spend a year of my life writing that book. There are a lot of people that starting to write about yoga and even yoga therapy. So you're so right. Mm-hmm. The load is off your shoulders. Thank you. Yes, it's covered, right? You're right. Other folks are taking that ring to Mordor. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm so grateful. And it is quite a ring to take to Mordor. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. Grief is so much more fun and exciting to to write about and talk about, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Actually, yes. I mean, we have focused the beginning of this conversation on the suffering part of... Yeah, the, the trials and tribulations. Yeah. Also, once we discovered the framing device that we wanted to use for this book, which is this expanded metaphor of the therapist as adventurer in the woods, creating a map to the realms of grief, and the sages and the quirky characters they encounter along the way in this magical realist universe, 
then the pain was still there, of course, but had this layer of magic that felt meaningful and important and no longer felt like suffering for the sake of suffering. Right, because before we'd come up with that framing device, I remember you know, a couple of conversations where you and I were very concerned because we didn't want the reading of the book to feel like, uh, to that point, the writing of the book. Right. (laughs) Because no one's going to read a book that just makes them feel terrible constantly, right? Like you're going to, most folks, I think, would put that kind of book down. And so we really had to come up with something that would provide like levity and lightness and carry you through, you know, those darker caves and caverns of Mm. the process. You know, I think there's a book, too, on that whole thing, because it took a while to get to that part of the book. And you really didn't focus on that as much as it sounds like you just described it. So I think there is a book, too, of exploring that much further, perhaps creating more of a uh, purely fan fiction mythic journey kind of a book. I I see what you're saying. I think that would be pretty cool as a workbook to accompany this book. Okay, Mm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you mean it's like going hard on the fan fiction and just like really writing like a fantasy realm of grief? Yeah, and plugging it into this whole, because I I did an interview with a couple of other therapists. They're a dynamic duo like the two of you. One of them lives in LA and the other lives in New York City. Oh, wow, they're really dynamic. (laughs) And they wrote a book called The Eel and the Blowfish. And it's a graphic novel, but it's not really a novel. It's a fictional therapeutic story. Mm-hmm. Oh, It's a great thing to look at as a possible model for how you, or just to give you ideas of how you want to do your thing. And one of them is an artist. So they both contributed to the writing, but one of them did all the illustrations. Uh, I wish. And I think you could create something that's a lot more fun and more dynamic and with more of the mythic fan fiction elements because theirs was more a therapeutic story Mm. and fairly simple one but still powerful and and profound and welcoming to you know lay people who like don't realize how available therapy is for them in their dire deeply traumatized and shameful state of experience and you know you know the obstacles mm-hmm. they have to overcome even to reach out for help. You know, mm-hmm. one of those yeah. things where if this person could reach out and they could get help for what they've been through, then anybody can. I really like that. I appreciate you sharing this because in my mind right now, I am like creating the visual in my mind is more of a children's book because because of like how how mythic our stuff is. I'm just imagining like a children's book where, you know, you've discovered a honey badger. <laughs> and, and the and the honey badger's like, come on, let's go into this wintry lodge. And then you meditate in the wintry lodge. And that sounds delightful. The other I thing I really love about it too is, Tonio, I feel like when we have our chats, you very much like anticipate in some ways, like the next place that we're going. And like, we can't talk too much about it yet because it's in very, very early stages. But Justine and I are pretty convinced that the next place we're going is going to be solidly in the realm of fiction. I think that's where you two belong. You know, the duo dynamic spirit that the two of you embody are most wanting to go. That's just my feeling. 
Because, mm-hmm. you know, when I get to talk with you and see mm-hmm. you, and it's really delightful to watch you too and to hear you. I mean, Aww. the two of you, and the way you were talking about the way you, you are concerned about each other and the way you relate. I mean, to me, that's love. Mm-hmm. That's the most beautiful embodiment of love, or at least it's one of them. I mean, romantic love when it works is wonderful too, but this is much more real to me. You know, the romantic thing is, that's really entering way, way into the realm of fan fiction and fantasy and, and all, all those kind of things that, that end up falling off the cliff often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's chaos magic, right? Like romantic love is so often chaos magic and chaos magic is very hard to sustain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a blast. It's, it's great while it's working, but, <laughs> but then, you know, the highs are incredible and then the lows are also equally mm-hmm. incredible, you know, on the other end of the spectrum. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and thank you so much for naming this. And I can, I can tell Larissa is like, the tip of a pin away from crying. Oh, um, absolutely. I'm like holding on with everything I have. <laughs> <laughs> Just weep. Uh, <laughs> but it speaks to something that we talk about in this book, which is the power of relationships and the importance of platonic love and friendship and chosen yeah. family as the center of cultural life. Because so often romantic love, that chaos magic, is presented as the center of cultural life. And we feel, this is just our bias, that much is lost when we view the world that way. And when we don't give chosen family the respect it deserves and the space it deserves in our lives, right? Like if something were to happen to Larissa, if she were to become ill and I worked for a big company, they wouldn't give me a paid leave to no, go take would, care of my best friend. It would not qualify as like you taking family medical leave and were the worst to happen and I were to die in most mm-hmm. companies in the United States, it might not even merit a bereavement day. Like I know in Illinois where mm-hmm. I live, the legislation is like very, very strict around bereavement days that it can only be immediate family which means immediate family of origin mom dad dick jane and your and not even your dog spot because he's not not counted and your romantic life partner and your children if you have human children it doesn't fit into our model of gdp in this culture you know no you're right and one thing i i really appreciate that you bring to all of this is you fully acknowledge the dysfunction of our capitalist system, particularly at this stage where where it's truly run rampant into this deep cul-de-sac where we're just barreling headlong, you know, toward the edge of the cliff and we're so close to it now. That's well and, said. I mean, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, yeah well, I, I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Larissa, sorry. go. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go because what you have reminded me of is that, you know, Chicago's in the midst of a giant heat wave. And I've been hearing a lot from clients and colleagues and also people that I just know socially being so upset that, like, I've heard this refrain of we're not getting the Chicago summer that we deserve. Oh, oh, wow. that That's so multi-layered. So multi-layered, right? Because like, yes, on the one hand, like the top layer, right? You know, the creme with like mm-hmm. maybe the cherry, if you will, is that like, yeah, of course it is sad because when you live in the Midwest, you don't get that many 
warm days or months. And what we do get is like really cherished and treasured. And then when we get down, maybe into the granola, because I've decided this is a fruit parfait. (laughs) (laughs) In this refrain, there's a sense of like what we're owed. Yeah. Which really connects back to what you're saying, Tonio, the way that like capitalism has just permeated our economic, our political, our cultural, our interpersonal spheres, such that We view the planet as something that belongs to us and that is really there for our exploitation. And when we don't get the product, the content from the planet that we want, we feel like that is just unfair and how dare. Mm -hmm. And these are the people who have very comfortable homes and they live by the lake and they have air conditioning and Mm -hmm. they're the ones who are we're bellyaching about this while the people who in, in South Chicago who often cannot afford air conditioning are really reaping all the grief while the ultra privileged are bellyaching about it and expressing grief as if they are totally entitled to it. Exactly. And one of the things that we really talk about in this book is that while grief is a very challenging emotional process. And it is something that like, it's understandable that humans avoid because it is incredibly painful and it's not short-lived. It is a legit long process. Um, It's so crucial because it's one of the few ways that humans make lasting change. We change through grief, through grieving. And we have to change as a global society in how we are existing and moving on this planet but, you know, in my dark moments, I do find myself getting really afraid, Tonya, for exactly what you're saying, that like the people who are in positions of power to really shift things socially right now are the belly acres, as you put it, <laughs> who are able still to shield themselves from the grieving that is necessary for them to see that, in fact, it's time to make lasting change. You know, what just occurred to me as you were saying that is that like the grieving part of this that you're acknowledging is like the step after like the hero's journey step that we indulge in in this culture and, and we we think is is the be-all, end-all, and we hope that it's the end of the line for us because that's the glory stage and, and we all want to go in, in a blaze of glory. But that doesn't last because that's sort of like the adolescent stage mm-hmm. of ego glorification. Yeah. And, I mean, when you look at politics and politicians and... Hollywood and all of that, it's all about glorifying that. But if you get stuck there, we're stuck basically in a stage of adolescence or early adulthood, like being in our early 20s and we never we never evolved past that. And it seems like grief is the next step. And grief is a very challenging step. It, it can be very painful and it can take forever. I mean, yeah. when you're when you're in it, it often feels like it's never going to end and we're going to die here and we're going to die miserable, you know, broken, yes. poor and miserable. So that's like the real work that we have to do, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. You know, a metaphor that I use often and it's a popular one is the moth or butterfly, right? The caterpillar goes into the cocoon Not knowing what it's going to become, just knows it has to go in there to the dark, scary place. And it dissolves into a puddle of goo. 
it doesn't know that it will ever be anything other than the puddle of goo. It just has to be that for a while. And then lo and behold, it becomes this creature with wings, but it's still stuck in the scary place where it has to beat its wings against the husk to fight its way out like a vampire trying to get out of its coffin. These are not comfortable experiences. No, no, that's true. And when we are on the outside witnessing someone beating their wings against the husk, we want to open the husk and let them out. But then their wings aren't strong. They haven't gone through the full transformation. And we keep saving each other from the pain that is necessary for lasting change. And there is a past iteration of me, Larissa is smiling, because there are past iterations of me who would not like this me at all. <laughs> they would be like, no, Justine, we save the people from pain. Save that's you right. from the pain. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what superheroes are for. But unfortunately, it sort of reflects on that old metaphor that you can give someone a fish if they're hungry, but if you really want to help them out, you have to teach them how to fish for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I love the way you wrote about the caterpillar butterfly metaphor that the butterfly or the emerging butterfly has to really beat its wings really hard and long. And it's like mm -hmm. a, it's a life and death struggle to get out of the cocoon. And mm -hmm. yet it's the only way it's going to survive in the world is if it finds a way to exercise its muscles, its wing muscles to that degree. Mm -hmm. And it was eye-opening for me because it's a great metaphor for what we have to accomplish in this world. Like we really have to learn how to stand on our own feet and face all the challenges that we're facing, you know, whatever they are happen to be, you know, in our time, in our lives. And these days we've got a lot on our plate and the chef is about to keep a huge amount more. <laughs> <laughs> and the instruction is you have to eat everything on your plate. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad that the metaphor spoke to you because that's, Larissa knows this is one of my most cherished metaphors yeah. and I share it with most of my clients and all of my students because I, I teach baby therapists. These are not literal babies. These are emerging therapists. But they come into therapy school, as we all do, thinking they're going to quote unquote fix people. And part of what I talk to them about is like, well, first of all, people aren't broken. So we're not needed to be fixers. And also, let me tell you the story of, I prefer moths. Moths That's make Larissa true. uncomfortable. So That's we true. are with butterflies. She, she did want moths, Tonio. And like, we, we went a few rounds on it. And I was like, I'm very sorry. We can't do moths. We need to do butterflies. And so indeed, I got to win that battle. You did. You did. Yes, but I share yeah. that with my students to say, hey, you're opening the cocoon. And even though that feels better to you because you're not watching the moth struggle, it's not better for them because you're not giving them the opportunity to strengthen their wings enough. And they don't even yet know the challenges that they themselves are going to have to go through in this therapeutic field because they that was not. A, that <laughs> I was. That was another huge eye-opener for me because, you know, I'm very well aware of the outrageous 
and incredibly debilitating dysfunction of our medical system. But I had no idea that there's a similar dynamic in the therapeutic yeah. field as well. Mm-hmm. So could you talk about that and how it impacts you, particularly in the early stages, you know, before you become rich and shameless? um i'm just i'm hesitating because i'm like where to begin because there's so much there i think the place that i often go initially is to think about the relationship between mental health professions and private insurance because the way that private insurance views mental health and treatment is based on the western medical model And the sort of push-pull between these two systems, the systems of therapists and the system of private insurance, has by and large been lost by therapists and mental health professionals because we live in the greater late-stage capitalist milieu. And so we find ourselves structuring our sessions around this idea of more clients equals more money. Mm-hmm. which is good shortening the like thinking about um in terms of like measuring sessions via time increments rather than the emotional energy that it actually takes to be in session with someone so what do i mean by that i mean there's a real energetic difference between a 15 minute crisis assessment that I've had to do over the years to determine does a person actually need to go to a hospital because they're in imminent danger to themselves versus a 45-minute session with a client that I've worked with for years who is very much in like a maintenance phase, right? Like they've done a lot of their deep, painful, grieving therapeutic work. And yes, it's a meaningful session, but the kind of energy it takes from me as a clinician is far less than that 15 to 20 minute crisis call. But private insurance doesn't view it that way. They view it in terms of time increments. And so they they reimburse more for that 45 minute session than they do for that 15 to 20 minute session. And in fact, private insurance at this point, usually they don't even reimburse for crisis coded (sighs) sessions. Are you kidding? No. Oh, see, this is news to me, Tony. I don't work with insurance. So Larissa tells me all the horror stories about insurance providers. Mm-hmm. Oof. And then you get in this push-pull as a clinician because you, like, clients come in and they want to use their private insurance if they have it. They don't want to pay out-of-pocket rates. But then that means that treatment in and of itself is partially dictated by this third-party entity. Mm-hmm. And if the question in your minds, friends at home, is, Justine, why don't you work with insurance? That's exactly why. When I got into private practice, I was like, you know what? Even though it is going to cause a financial barrier for clients, I'm going to do a social justice thing and I'm going to bill clients a sliding scale based on their household income. But I'm not going to work with insurance because I don't want any third party getting between me and my client's care. And that's a privilege to be able to do that. Yeah, I, and that whole piece that I described, just because I want to mm-hmm. flag it, we think of it as being, or it's often talked about in more mainstream society as causing burnout in clinicians. And in the book, we make a distinction that I think is really important um, between individual burnout versus what's called moral injury. And moral injury is what happens in that situation I described, where as a clinician, you're stuck between 
competing interests, you can't get away from one, like meeting your client where they're at and also them wanting to use their insurance, but you also can't get away from the dictates of private insurance. And it results in you being chronically overwhelmed, chronically overworked, often underpaid. And so you experience what we think of as symptoms from burnout, but the reality is that's moral injury because that's when oppressive systems are acting on you and you can't get away from them. And that's like the opposite of the way the system should be set up, because when people are first entering into the field, they need a lot of support and they should be encouraged and nurtured their way into their field so that they have more to offer. And instead, what our culture, our society and our system is doing is the exact opposite. They're putting more pressure on these new babies, so to speak. Yeah. They're paying them less Mm -hmm. and they're stressing the hell out of them to the point where it seems like how could they possibly emerge from this metaphorical cocoon as healthy, strong butterflies who are able to help anybody? Yes, thank you. And this is actually in our field, marriage and family therapy, um, you can become an approved supervisor. You go through a course, you do a bunch of, you know, training stuff and practice supervising. And Larissa and I are both approved supervisors. And the reason I wanted to do that was because I looked around at all the exploitation and it doesn't all come from insurance mandates. I mean, there are folks who run agencies who are just capitalists and they are running young clinicians through the mill not caring whether they grow or become solid clinicians or are offering quality care just that they are bodies who are able to bill and it's very gross and it's not everyone i want to be clear about that no and also it is much more rampant than you or other folks outside of the field would want to believe because You want to think that people who know better do better. But unfortunately, sometimes people who know better exploit what they know. And I have seen this more often than I would like, which is why I became an approved supervisor. And, you know, using the butterfly metaphor here, these baby therapists are not left to their own devices to transform. They're like, I don't know, they're like getting beat up inside as they're trying they're trying to flap their wings and someone's like hitting the outside of the cocoon and they're like please just let me flap right (laughs) i mean we want to go back to our planetary metaphor perhaps their chrysalis was built in what was once an open field but then it got bought by land developers (laughs) and now another strip mall is being built in a beautiful mossy swamp Uh where once it was safe and they can't like, and they're not ready to leave the chrysalis. Mm-hmm. And yet the land developers are coming with their, with their vats of cement. Right. Mm-hmm. And now they're taking all the chrysalises because they want to capitalize on the butterflies and they're putting them in, in like that thing that they had in the matrix movie. Yes. And, <laughs> and cultivating the butterflies so that they can plug them into their vulture capitalist system. This is the most evocative and saddest image. (laughs) (laughs) We've really taken this butterfly metaphor to new narrative landscapes. I did take it to another level of horror. (laughs) I mean, this is really 
turning into kind of like a fan fiction horror story, which, and I do not like horror movies at all. I mean, I avoid them like the plague. Oh, you and Larissa have that in common. Mm -hmm. It makes Justine very sad. It does. Except I like the old black and white ones because they weren't gory. Yeah, so like Wolfman and... Uh, Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The mummy. Dracula. The original mummy. Sure. Mm-hmm. The original. Yeah. Nosferatu. Yeah. In black and white, blood mm-hmm. isn't scary. Hmm. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So when we do the casting for this horror butterfly film, we will make sure to talk to the cinematographer and executive producers and let them know it needs to be in black and white. Yeah, and resurrect Bell Lugosi and, and people like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love Bella Lugosi. Larissa, would you watch a classic horror movie like that? Like, I would. Would you watch Wolfman? Yeah, I'd watch old stuff with you. I would okay. watch Bella Lugosi with you and like Nosferatu with you. Yeah. Right. I just okay. can't do like slasher pictures and jump scares. Mm-hmm. That's too much for my nervous system. Mm-hmm. There are also versions of Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Dracula that have like the three stooges or laurel and hardy you know to make it even more palatable or more fun there you Mm -hmm. go but i have i've strayed us far from the course where were we tony oh and i've i've strayed us far from the course too i mean we're having too much fun on this topic of grief (laughs) yeah you know we found this to be true on our little media tour for the book i think folks expect us and I mean, we've already met, so you knew I, we weren't going to, you know, show up be all dour. in black and be dour. <laughs> Although, I mean, I will be in all black no matter what. But I think people were expecting, yes, dourness. And we show up and we're, you know, just sort of bright, shiny pennies who can talk about sad stuff. But we don't stop being bright, shiny pennies because we can talk about grief without having it, like, consume us and I really like being able to model that. That like, hey, here's this really scary, overwhelming concept that we can bring out and we can talk about it the way we experienced it as children. And what I mean is when children grieve, it doesn't look like what adults expect. So kids kind of naturally titrate. You know, you tell Mm -hmm. them that the family dog has died and they'll be very sad. And then they'll say, can I go outside and play? And sometimes parents will be like, oh, you know, little Jilly isn't processing the family dog's death. You know, she's only cried a couple of times and then she goes outside to play or she watches her favorite movie. And what parents don't understand is that children still have a skill that we have lost which is the ability to naturally titrate in and out of the experience of grief. And that that experience is not always sadness. Part of Mm -hmm. it is integrating this new information into the life that you are living. And so children sit and they experience sadness and then they go outside and experience play without the family dog. And then maybe they will also be sad again. Then they'll watch a movie and experience the world without family dog watching the movie and reintegrating life with this new reality and this natural titration that we as grown-ups have been socialized out of. Here's what grief looks like. Here's what grief should feel like. Well, Larissa and I are going to show up and say, here's how grief can look. 
it can look like talking about the Wolfman on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And then we can titrate back into some deep systemic pain about climate collapse. And then we can titrate out. And, you know... (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. And one of the things I want to highlight that makes that possible is we're not able as human beings to be selective about the feelings that we want to have distance from versus the feelings that we want to be more engaged with. What I mean by that is that like, because like that actually is a little confusing. We can have, we can titrate in and out, but if we're shutting off our connection to our emotions that tends to be an all or nothing experience. So we're either like numbing out of feeling period Mm -hmm. or engaged with all of our feelings and can shift between them and amongst them. And often for children, they either haven't been taught or haven't needed to do the full numbing out from feelings period and have more of that innate ability to be really present with sadness, but then go outside and shift and be really present with joy. And then when they think again about like, oh, when I would play, sometimes my dog would come out and see me, and then they're sad again, and then they see a butterfly and they feel delight because they're fully present and engaged with life. And that's the natural way that we experience the world, that things come and go in their own time, in their own natural way. And it's always gonna be completely different for each person. And I think it makes it much more easy for everyone if they allow themselves to flow in the moment in those ways, so that you're not just taking on the huge dump truck on top of you all at once. That's right. That's Which right. is often, often what it seems like to adults who don't want to deal with it to begin with. So they're like living in fear of the dump truck load. And of course, that just makes it happen in a sort of self-creating, self-destructive way, because we haven't been taught any better. In fact, we have been taught the worst way to think about everything. Right. And we're so terrified to what you're saying. We're so terrified of how that feeling is going to feel that we do a lot of anticipatory (laughs) pushing away. Yeah. Like anticipatory shutting ourselves off. You know, both of my parents have passed and there was 10 years between their passing. Um, I didn't get a ton of warning with my father. I mean, he he had been ill, but he'd been ill many times and then been fine. And in this case, he was ill and he was not fine. And that was a huge shock to my system. And it was before I was a therapist. And it felt so awful, indescribably awful. But also, um, my dad was a public figure, so I needed to put on this public face, this public persona. And I just straight up decided, well, I guess I need to shut off whatever this is, this pain thing, and deal with all of the logistics of life. And then I'll grieve later. And I think it was probably three years later that I really like experienced that grief. And it was so awful that when we were coming to the end of my mother's life, I was like, oh, no, oh, no, this is going to be so painful. Oh, no, I don't want to experience this pain again. And it was like I was already afraid of the feeling that was going to come before it came. 
Yeah, I, I do remember that because we were really close by the time your mom started to really decline. Yeah. And that there would be real, there would be periods when you would just, it like you would be physically there, but I could tell that you weren't fully emotionally there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like this is going to be awful. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to shut down. And then if in three years, I'm going to have a horrible I'll, depressive episode. I'll power back on with a horrible dumbstruck <laughs> depressive episode. And I guess I'll deal with that then. But luckily, I was surrounded by my chosen family when my mom finally did pass. And it was painful, of course. I grieved, of course. But it felt much more authentic I felt like I was able to be in the grief at the time the grief was happening and that I was being held and given space to have that experience. And, you know, as we're talking about it now, I can remember laying on the couch of part of my chosen family. And sometimes I would be on my computer picking things out for the funeral. And sometimes I would be watching something dumb on TV. And sometimes my chosen family member would say, hey, I made you some mac and cheese, come eat something. And I was able to be held and exist for what was coming. And certainly not with the intuition of a child, but at least with some intuitive knowing that it was okay to sometimes be sad. It was okay to sometimes watch a Hallmark movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I love... The word I'm going to pick out from what I'm hearing you say, because it does keep coming up, is feeling held. Mm-hmm. And I think when we are grieving, we don't need to be protected from mm. our grief. Mm-hmm. So much of the systems that we have created in these are modern times are designed to protect shield us from our grieving so that we don't reach it or touch it. Mm-hmm. But that's actually not what we need. We need to feel held and supported and in loving present community that can be with us you know it's interesting because we're talking about horror movies so i'm thinking of that scene from the movie midsummer i love that you you don't like horror movies but you've seen midsummer i haven't even watched that it's because it like pulls from um like scandinavian myth and so i'm like this is great scandinavian myth i can like ride this But there's a scene where she's so upset and like she's been avoiding her grieving because there's been this terrible tragedy in her family of origin. And even though she finds herself in a Scandinavian death cult, (laughs) there's real like care and presence, perhaps because this group of people knows how to be present with death. They're also thus able to be present with all these other things. And there's this scene where she's finally surrounded by what to her feels like caring humans. And so she just starts scream crying and they're all there with her, holding her, touching her face. And you see like, as she moves through her feelings and gets to the other side, finally, after avoiding it, just like you said, because she feels held. Mm -hmm. Wow. The benefits of a death cult. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? Who would imagine the the light side of a death cult? I mean, you know, human societies contain multitudes across the ages. And I will say, Tonya, one of the through lines that I found when I was doing research for this book was the importance of being able to be with death. I do think that our modern American late stage capitalist society, by and large, is 
terrified of death. And in losing religion, which is like very problematic, I certainly don't want to like wallpaper over that, friends, but losing the religious context, which gives death meaning, has brought us to this place where it now within our mainstream culture is just this awful thing that happens and people and beings get taken away from us. And so I do feel like that's just like amplified this practice of let's protect ourselves from grief, let's protect ourselves from death. But by doing both those things, you're actually cutting yourself off from life itself. Yeah, it's like the materialist worldview creates nothing but a horror scenario about death. I mean, there's absolutely nothing more horrifying than the imagination of absolute nothingness from this side of the fence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's our mainstream perspective that we have to deal with, that you as therapists, I'm sure you guys wrestle with that with many of your clients or that you, you just have to sit with them and hear and let them go through it like the butterfly learning to break open the cocoon with, with its paltry wings to begin with. Yeah. And I was thinking about like you guys as therapists, you're like the elders of our age in that you understand what it's on the other side of grief. You know that there is there is something magical I mean, truly magical and powerful on the other side of this deep chasm of darkness that mm -hmm. seems unending and, you know, from the materialist perspective, couldn't possibly exist. But you know mm -hmm. that it does. And in that way, you are like real elders and sages of the realm, you know, to use your term. Thank you. You Thank Now you, you are going to make Larissa cry. I'm really trying hard not to. <laughs> and I want to say, like, Tonya, thank you. That really, that really means a lot to hear you say that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people realize the possibility of the client-therapist relationship. Many people stigmatize therapy as something, you know, from the perspective of there being something wrong with them in contrast to... No, it's not that there's something wrong with you, but there's magic inside of you that you can open up to discover. And there are these great beings, you know, these, and in your case, these dynamic duos, superheroes who can actually guide you on your own journey to get there because it is your journey and it is your pot of gold, the magic that awaits you on the other side. And it really, it really is like magic on the other side, isn't it? Oh, it totally is. And it's not far be it from, you know, that medical model, private insurance way of looking at things as if it's like a, a wound to be healed, mm -hmm. a problem to be fixed, a bone to be set. Yes, sometimes the therapy can serve that purpose, but so much of the deep work is exactly as you say, Tonio, it's finding someone, finding a therapist to be your guide. Mm -hmm. as you move through these deep realms of life. Yeah. And we speak to this in the book that, you know, therapists in this kind of post-religious centric world are the new spiritual advisors. Mm -hmm. And that's not a thing we learn in therapy school. <laughs> um, not yet. Not yet. You know, the more I teach, the more I bring stuff like this up. 
but we we walk with clients through the darkest tunnels of their life, through tunnels they didn't even know were there. We walk with clients into their own death. I talk about that in the book, a, a client of mine who was actively dying of cancer and what it was like to literally walk with that person into their end and how completely ill-equipped I was from an educational standpoint. I was much more pulling from my own spirituality, which is a love of stories and a meaning-making through narrative, to help that person form an idea of what they hoped, what they wished the afterlife would be. And, you know, I called it fanficking the afterlife. And it really offered this person a lot of peace to hold in their mind that, okay, yeah, even though I don't have a faith tradition, I can decide and I can hold in my mind at the end of my life that this is where I'm going. And who's to say they weren't? We don't know. Maybe fanficking the afterlife is actually how it works, right? You get to the other side of whatever the veil is, and there's, you know, afterlife Gandalf saying, <laughs> what's, what's your afterlife fanfic? Let's write it. <laughs> well, actually, from talking to people who've had full-on near-death experiences, it is a lot like that. I mean, everybody has their own tale, but it actually sounds a lot like that. And listening to you guys, I see a powerful similarity between the journey through grief to the other side and this notion of, of imagining or fanficking what's in the afterlife. Because they have a similar quality because the journey is entering into this unknown, this darkness that, that from our side doesn't even exist or couldn't possibly exist from our perspective. And yet, if you listen and can trust in the wise elders, who have been there, or at least been partway there, who have explored the other side, like the two of you, you haven't explored the afterlife, fortunately, but yes. you've gone through the, yes, grief, fortunately. the grief journeys. <laughs> well, I love so much about what you're saying, not the least of which because it is coming back to something that you said much earlier in our conversation that really resonated about this idea that the hero's journey that is often focused on in our mainstream American culture is the coming of age version of the hero's journey. Mm. So it's appropriate, but it belongs to a particular early stage of our life cycle. And the next story, the next phase of our life cycle is moving through a series of grievings. And I don't know that I'd ever really consciously thought about that being preparation for like that final end just so silly at least part of me is feeling like it's silly because it's so obvious now i love that you named it tonio because of course it is that moving through cycles of grief to help you prepare to meet your end and also before you meet your end to help other people who are going through their cycles that's of grief. right that's right and that's it reminds me of a model a four-step model i think it was from a native american Hmm. traditional perspective of, you know, after the hero's journey, which is an adolescent coming of age stage, um, once you go through your own real challenges of adulthood and you've passed on, you know, earned your way to the other side of grief, 
and you go up the mountain, so to speak. After that, then you come back down the mountain to help others. Mm -hmm. Yes, that idea of first you must become an individual and then you must return to your community. Yeah. And really engage in that communal life and do that dialectical dance between individual growth and development and communal presence and connection and belonging. And that's what you two do. I mean, that's your profession. Mm-hmm. And obviously mm-hmm. you guys have, have your heart in it. And I have been very interested in this and have flirted many times in my life with entering that profession as well as the education mm-hmm. profession, which is similar. Mm-hmm. When yeah. I looked at the system in which they exist in the, in our culture and I go, no way. Yeah. You know, I have to get the string of garlic yeah. around my neck and say, I can't, <laughs> that terrifies me because I know so many people in these fields, you know, it, like in the medical field, it's a horror show. And in the education field, it's equally a horror show. I didn't realize that it was that way or that it could be in the therapeutic field, because I know a lot of people who don't, you know, they don't deal with insurance and they, mm-hmm. they do their practice, you know, on their own terms. And I've been fortunate enough to just have had, you know, I had a a wonderful therapist in my two years of therapy many Mm -hmm. years ago, and it was wonderful. And somebody suggested, because I was going through a hard time, that I do that. And they recommended somebody. And they actually offered to pay for my first few sessions because they probably figured that if left to my own devices, I would weasel my way out. I would say, (laughs) I can't afford that. or And it was hard for me to, to afford it. Mm-hmm. But after doing a few sessions that they paid for, I wanted to go back. I loved it. Yeah. This is an art. And what makes it so difficult is there's been this whole infrastructure built around an art form. And art isn't mm-hmm. really made to be packaged this way. But I would love to share a little anecdote in case folks at home are like, oh, no, everything in the therapy world is sad. So Larissa and I recently had an official book launch party for our book, which was a very big deal because we weren't able to have a book launch party for our first book because it was in the middle of the pandemic. And one of our old mentors, now colleague and friend, came. And so did some of my students and some of the baby therapists who are out in the world who I supervise came. And I was able to introduce the students and baby therapists to our former mentor as, you know, this is your therapy grandmother. These are your therapy grandchildren. And there was this beautiful moment where our former mentor hugged all of the students and supervisees. And she was so delighted to be their therapy grandmother. And she told them about the woman who had been her mentor and the upcoming therapists were like, oh, wow, we could do our own genogram, which is like a therapy family tree. Like we can do our own therapy family tree of our lineage oh, in the I field. And it felt the way this art form should feel, where it's apprenticed just like any artisan of old and being able to see the generations who have learned from one another. It was truly beautiful. And that moment to me felt like what the therapy world should be and could be if we all just rise up and start a revolution. Oh, I love that so much. (laughs) 
talking with Justine Maston and Larissa Garski. Their new book we've been talking about is The Grieving Therapist, Caring for Yourself and Your Clients When It Feels Like the End of the World. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. It seems like we've been just having fun talking about grief. I mean, I certainly did not expect that <laughs> from this conversation. You're welcome, or if you're, you're disappointed, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been thoroughly enjoying this, but I kind of feel responsible to bring us back into the dark realm. All right, let's you know, do it. Let's go dark. You know, to head into Mordor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's go. So, um, we're entering into this time of unprecedented change and crises coming at us from literally from every direction, it seems, and all at the same time these days. I mean, heat waves, floods, wildfires, climate change, late stage capitalism, media disinformation, being on the verge of civil war in this country, you know, a place where we always assumed it couldn't happen here. Again. Right. Touche. Yeah, exactly. And that this is just the beginning of the unfolding of this huge cataclysm that's barreling down us. Yeah. So um, how are you seeing and experiencing this in your clients? And, and then, of course, how is that affecting you as their therapist? Larissa, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Why don't you start? Okay. Because I saw your thought balloon, but I wasn't sure if it was fully formed. Um. <laughs> So, <laughs> always love a good check in. <laughs> yeah. You know, I never think about talking about thought balloons, but then I'll say it in front of someone who's never heard me say it before. And they're like, oh, thought balloon. Oh, um, I used your thought balloon so much in a consult I had yesterday. Did you really? It was like very tense. And let me tell you, the power of the thought balloon as a framing device. Mm-hmm. It just lit. It was like a, a spark that everyone caught and it changed the whole vibe of the console. Oh, I love that. You are so welcome. That's friendship and collaboration. So how does this come up with clients? I'll start there first. My clients are very intellectual, like highly educated, highly tuned in people. And so they they know this. They know that we are in a climate collapse. They know that we are at the precipice of whatever is coming down the pike, you know, the water wars or whatever, you know. We joke about the water wars, but really, California homes can't get home insurance and Arizona is basically unlivable at this point with lack of water and rain. And so I use a metaphor with them, shockingly. Folks at home are like, another metaphor? Yes. And this doesn't even touch the tip of the iceberg of my metaphor stack. And I use the metaphor of the Titanic. Not the James Cameron fan fiction. 
I take great offense to that because I am a scholar of the historical Titanic. But what I talk about is, yes, the Earth is very ill. And yes, we don't know how much time we have with her in the state that she's in. And also, we don't know how much time we ever have. Because what so often happens to the clients that start ruminating about climate collapse is they're like, well, what is the point of doing anything? They fall into nihilism. You know, why do anything with my life if this will be meaningless? And what they mean by that is I can't leave a legacy if there's no one to read it. And I feel that profoundly as the child of a public figure for whom being in the papers. And two writers, you know. Yes, and they were both writers. So, you know, your legacy being written. Like, my father literally does have statues. (laughs) Talk about legacy. But I talk about the Titanic with clients. And I say, listen, the folks on the Titanic, when it hit that iceberg, they had two hours and 40 minutes to live. And they didn't know exactly how long they had, but they knew something big had happened and that they needed to make a choice. And some folks chose to ignore that the ship had hit an iceberg. They knew it happened, but they were like, this is an unsinkable ship. It doesn't matter if we hit an iceberg. We're going to be fine. I'm not going to stand out here on this cold deck waiting to be evacuated into the darkness of the ocean when I could stay here on the unsinkable ship and have another glass of port. We know these people, right? Some folks had said they would go down with the ship if it went down, you know, folks who had pledged their service. They're like, well, I'm being told by the captain to evacuate, so that's what I need to do. They're going to be of service. That's what Mm -hmm. they're going to do with however long they have. There are people who are rushing the boats, willing to throw other people overboard in order to get a spot. These might be our capitalists. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I don't hate all capitalism. I mean, I would like to make some money off this book if we're being real. (laughs) But it's a a tool. (laughs) And like any tool, it's not the appropriate one to be using all day, every day, 24-7, 365. Mm Mm-hmm. Correct. And back to the RMS Titanic. Um, Some folks are going to want to cuddle in their beds with their loved ones in these final moments. But the folks that I like to point to with my clients is the Titanic band. These are real historical people. They were in that James Cameron fan fiction, but they also existed in real life. And what they did when they looked around and realized that the ship was going down, they decided to play. And... People do remember that, you know, survivors talked about how meaningful it was that they played. And I believe, I can't ask them this, but I believe they played because it was meaningful to them. Because they wanted to be in community with one another and their instruments Mm -hmm. and offer that feeling of being held for the folks who were making other choices. And they played until they can no longer play. And then mostly met with the icy ocean. But when I bring this up to clients, I say, who do you want to be with your two hours, which is all that we are now promised? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be a helper? Do you want to be a meaning maker? Do you want to be a lover in a bed? Do you want to be someone that pushes people out of the way to get ahead? And 
it's been a really useful way to talk about this with clients. They get it. And I also bring up that like the folks who were making all those choices, they were first and second class passengers. Third class passengers never had a choice of what was going to happen to them. Right. And so the fact that you even get any of these choices means you already are in a pretty privileged spot for these last couple hours. So how are we going to use that? What are we going to do with it? And then that helps me make meaning, too, because I come back to that when I also feel like, oh, no, you know, no one's going to erect statues to me. And hmm. if the climate collapses, the statues of my father will crumble be in the streets of Pennsylvania. Yeah. If the oceans reach Pennsylvania, it really is all over. Uh <laughs> I think you did a really beautiful job, Justine. Well, I got to talk about the Titanic. You know how much I love that. I know. You love a good Titanic. One of the hardest moments when we were writing is when you thought I was going to tell you we had to take out our Titanic metaphor. And I had to keep swearing up and down for days that, indeed, that was not going to happen. Oh, I got so defensive. I, I typically don't get super defensive when we're writing together. But I was like, we are not getting rid of the Titanic. That is very important to me. <laughs> but then for a while, you were like, it's fine. I don't know. Maybe it's fine. And I was like, mm, it's totally not fine. But at any rate... <laughs> We got the Titanic in the book and we got the Titanic now. But what I wanted to offer was I thought you did such a beautiful job of naming ways to approach this in a clinical context and in mm -hmm. a client setting. I wonder perhaps if I balance out and talk about how to be with this like outside as, as a human being. How does oh, that perfect. feel? Yeah, that feels wonderfully balanced. Thank you. So something that will probably not surprise you, Justine, maybe it'll surprise you, Tonio, I don't know, but it will probably surprise people who don't know me that well, is that like, I actually don't think the worst thing that could happen would be the end of human civilization as we know uh, it. No, this doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, in my darkest moments, I am very afraid that humans will endure in some form or fashion and that we will continue in this modern dystopian hellscape that we have crafted for ourselves. And we will continue to get further and further away from what it is to be a connected being on a giant system of ecology and life. And so when I get really dark and I think about that, the place that I go to to try to balance out my internal emotional scales is I go back to like, you know what? If the worst were to happen, the waters will rise and it will be the end of humans. And the planet will endure, the solar system will continue, the galaxy will continue expanding and expanding and expanding until it contracts. And I know that for many people, this would not be a helpful metaphor. In fact, I once tried a version of this. I like sort of like test drove it in a session and it was surprised Justine not at all that my client very quickly was like, no, 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 this is not helpful no, for me. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is not what I paid you for. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, okay, beautiful, cool. Thank you for the feedback. Let's pivot. Let's shift. Let's titrate. And we did. We found a better way to like come back to hope. But for me, this is one of the core ways that I come back to hope. And I, I go out and I go out and I remember there's so much life. There's so many other ways of being and existing. And as humans, we get so caught up in our very limited perspective of time and existence and self. Yeah, I've been there myself. I can relate. Yeah. So I go out and out and out, and then I'm able to come back in with a broader perspective and to remember that though there are many humans doing terrible things at this very moment, 
there's also so many beings. And I'm going to make myself cry. There's so many people working so hard. Like the musicians on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. Right. And like to be present and to help and to guide and to feel and to re-engage. And I think the thing that like I get like death spirally about is all this stuff right now with like artificial intelligence, which I don't even like that name because I don't think computers have that like sentient thing. I think all of that is like human projection because we we see life in our games. And I think that's beautiful and worthwhile if we use our games and our stories to come back and reconnect to the world. And I do get really worried about AI. Is like that, are we just going to like lose ourselves in an artificial landscape? We already have to a large degree. It's what our culture has turned into it to a large degree, hasn't it? Absolutely. And honestly, Tonio, that too helps me like restore to hope because I'm like, remember dystopia, it's happening right now. Like we tell stories to help us understand our present moment. And our present moment is one of great strife. It is one of dystopia. It is one of profound disconnection. And even right now in this time of like great upheaval and pain and horror, there's still so many of us working together and connecting. Mm-hmm. And using our technology to be together. Like, I think about this space, you know? Like, Tony, I was so delighted when I think we heard from Emily this time around. Emily was like, Tony wants to meet with you. And I was like, that's so great. We get to connect again. We get to come back together. We've made it through the last couple of years to all be connected. And we're using technology to facilitate this experience of being held and heard and seen. And when I think about that, I start to cry. Mm-hmm. Because... I feel hope coming back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I just have to say from, you know, being with you today, I just feel like I'm being held and I'm being included in this great love fest. Mm-hmm. You are. Mm-hmm. And it's so beautiful. Even in the face of the end of the world as we know it, we have this moment of beauty. Yeah. And funny story. I very much wanted the subtitle of this book to be caring for yourself and your clients at the end of the world. But the folks at North Atlantic Books thought that was a little too dark. They did. (laughs) So it became when it feels like the end of the world. (laughs) And that's actually appropriate because that's really what it's about. I mean, as therapists, Mm -hmm. it's all about what it feels like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're so right. And hopefully it is the end of this phase of human civilization. So it can be the dawn of a return and a recommitment to each other and all of the amazing creatures that are a part of this planet. Mm -hmm. We could find a new way forward, which is where the book ends. It ends in this idea of utopia, which is not a place that's like free of pain or free of darkness or free of tears or heaviness, but a place a place where we are all held. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those things can still happen, but we have supportive, understanding, compassionate community to be with us. Like I did when my mom died, right? It didn't keep her from dying. Nothing was no. going to do that. But having the support and being held made it livable, tolerable. I was able to move through it in such a different way than with my dad where I didn't feel held. And it was yeah. just 
you know, chaos mm-hmm. emotionally. Yeah. And I remember we went through, and by we, I mean, Justine, of course, was there sometimes physically, but oftentimes virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, my partners and my beloved dog, Marinum, died in the early stages of writing this book. And we held her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We yeah. held her when she crossed over. And then we were held by our loving chosen community. And it was like painful and hard and it was bearable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this is making me think of something. And I don't know if this is going to land because it literally just came to me. So we're going to test something out. Well, let's go. Tony, but, yeah. we're going to take this journey all together. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Entering new territory. We are entering new territory. But this is the beauty of conversation because collaboration creates meaning and meaning creates new ideas. Um, Viktor Frankl and Nietzsche both said something to the effect of we can survive any circumstance if there's meaning behind it. And I wonder if we could shift that to you can survive any what with a who. We can survive anything with community. Well, maybe it's not about survival. Maybe it's about changing and transcending we can transcend any circumstance with community that's right all right i just came across a wonderful definition of trauma Mm. as being a story that we're unable to narrate our way out of yeah yeah like that i mean that's so up your alley it is right. Oh, it totally is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's a story that you're unable to narrate your way out of alone. There it is. And if you're in a community who are stuck in that same yeah. story that no one is able to narrate their way out of. In fact, they're usually narrowing their way deeper into it. Mm-hmm. You're so right. I mean, you're highlighting something or you're sort of gesturing towards, well, I guess what I'm going to highlight, which is the importance of outsiders and elders and elders. People who have seen through to the other side, who've made that journey through the darkness. Mm-hmm. That's right. Who have broken through the cocoon in earnest, you know, with strong, powerful wings, mm-hmm. and then made the journey back down the mountain to help others. Yeah. Big elder energy. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I like that. You know, I've got a birthday coming up in a few months. I do feel like I'm in my elder stages. But since you brought up the utopia thing, which I love, could you talk more about the possibilities of this version of utopia as opposed to the kind of, you know, pie in the sky notion of Mm -hmm. utopia that we tend to have in our cultures and completely denigrate? Right. So, you know, Justine and I talked about this quite a bit, and this too came out of some of the early research that I did, in particular the book by this lovely human whose name I can never pronounce. So I'm just going to name the title of the book, which is Humankind, A Hopeful History. Our utopia very much came out of me reading that book, which puts forth this idea that humans are often at their best. So they're their most centered, giving, compassionate version of themselves when they're facing struggle. Starman. Mm-hmm. Remember mm-hmm. that line in Starman? No, but I loved that movie. Can you remind oh, man, me? Man, that's line? it's been ages since I've seen that movie. There's a scene where Jeff Bridges is the alien, and he's talking to the news person, and he says, "The beautiful thing about humankind is that you shine 
in a crisis. It's like you're shit the rest of the time, but you shine <laughs> in a crisis. Yes. Yes. Which is perhaps part of why we're struggling and in many ways failing on a large global scale right now, because we're trying to create a society where we're not directly engaged and supported and being in crisis. Yeah. Well, because crises are sort of leveraged against the populace. Yes. As a way to keep us focused on the 24-hour news cycle rather than starting a revolution. Right. <laughs> now it's making me think of that. It's a silent black and white film, Metropolis. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was very prescient. Yeah, it totally was. We got to see it, my romantic partner and I, a couple of years ago at the Music Box in Chicago, which is like this old historic theater. Oh, I where they that was have, amazing. It was amazing. And they have an organ. And so like before mm. the movie starts, this organist, this like delightful human will come out and play the organ. And then because it's a silent film, apparently it's also scored. So like back in the day, like an orchestra, I think, would come in when the movie was like being shown, I guess, in like the 1930s and 40s. Mm. But in this iteration, they brought someone in who played electric guitar. Wow. So we had live electric guitar music to the viewing of Metropolis. Oh, my God. To have Jimi Hendrix see that. <laughs> that might have been his calling in life to score that film. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. If only he'd had more time. Maybe in a, a different iteration of the multiverse. But anyway, back to Utopia. <laughs> Thank I you. want to make sure that we do good service to your question, Tonio, which is that, okay, so we started from this idea of like, okay, if challenge and crisis can bring out the very, very best in us, can inspire us to what is now called in the psychotherapy and psychology community is post-traumatic growth, then perhaps a sustainable utopia is a society, is a community where like, we're not trying to prevent you from feeling pain. We work together to support you in facing that pain, in being and sitting with those feelings. And that can start with us as individuals. So to give a concrete example, when Justine and I were baby therapists, it like now was a challenging time to try and do that, to survive, to like get the training to even like eventually to make it into elder status. And one of the ways that we made it here is that we work together to figure out how do we make sure that we have a place that we can go where we're held. Like I wasn't going to be held at like the community mental health organizations I was working at. No, she, see, she was being killed by black mold. Right. That's true. And exploited, you know, in earlier places. Right. Um, Justine, I, I don't remember how long you worked at. Was it a day treatment? intensive outpatient for dual diagnosed teenagers where by the time I left, I was doing three people's jobs and was not offered any additional compensation. And in fact, was laughed at when I asked for more money for doing three people's jobs. <laughs> so we were not going to be finding this version of utopia handed to us. We were going to have to work together to find a way to create it mm -hmm. ourselves. And so we went into what's called dyadic supervision with Patty, who is, you know, the supervisor grandmother of so many of our supervisees <laughs> now. And we sought outside supervision with someone that we knew would be able to hold compassionate space mm -hmm. for us to learn and practice and train. And we 
took so many of like the valuable aspects of that experience out into our work first as clinicians and then as supervisors ourselves. And so our supervisor, Patty, used to talk about this idea of change being ripples, that a stone falls in a pond. And yes, it's one singular stone, but the movement that it makes ripples out, ripples out, ripples out, and eventually touches everything that's in that pond. And so we have tried very much to do that in our field to create ripples of utopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the ways that I do that is through teaching. And I tell students, you don't need to tolerate being exploited. You will be told that this is part of the process. And I'm telling you that it doesn't need to be. And you can opt out. And I know that you are not in a position of power right now, but I am. And so if you find yourself being exploited, come tell me. And me, your elder, will act on your behalf in the ways that I can, which is not protecting from pain that is inevitable, but is fighting back against pain that is being inflicted for someone else's gain, right? which is unjust. And even if what students see is me saying that, even if I never intervene on their behalf, they know there's at least one person in the field who cares about them. And I've gotten so much feedback that that was just so meaningful. Even if they never needed me in that way or never reached out to me in that way, they were like, it opened up the possibility that there were people who did care about me as a human. And maybe I can reject some of these narratives that have been created. And I can be like you, me, not in the way of like becoming a weirdo narrative therapist, because that's not everyone's journey, but that they can question the story they have been handed and Mm -hmm. decide whether or not it fits them. And I really think that this upcoming generation of therapists, at least, is going to be getting us a lot closer to that at least therapeutic utopia in the ways that they can, even if it's just inside of themselves being aware that they're allowed to opt out of these systems that we were never told we were allowed to opt out of. Yeah, and that's beautifully modeling what we can actually do for each other in every area of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes me cry. Oh. I've enjoyed this so much. You can't see me, but I've been like a little kid squirming in my seat. I've been so thrilled <laughs> with this conversation. And I just love the two of you so much. I mean, oh. this is it's so wonderful. Thank you. The feeling is definitely mutual. We're so yes. glad we got to chat with you again. Yes, we really, we really love you, Tonio, and having this time with you. Like, it was a delight the first time, and this was its own unique, beautiful gift. So thank mm-hmm. you for having us back. And I look forward to the next time. And, and thank you both so much for your wonderful work, your heart, your spirit, and your care, even in the face of the end of the world. Oh, thank You're you. like the therapists on the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and you are a fellow storyteller, and we're all standing together. And to quote you briefly, the story we're writing can always be revised, and utopia is never done. Wow. I'm going to walk into my meeting with my baby therapist feeling all types of weepy. Thank you so much for that. And thank you Mm. for naming therapists on the Titanic. I think that I am going to need to make a TikTok of that. 
of me doing therapy on the Titanic. <laughs> I can't wait to our next conversation. Thank Later. you. Until next time. Bye. That was Justine Mastin and Larissa Garski. They are licensed marriage and family therapists. And together, they're the authors of Starship Therapies, using therapeutic fan fiction to rewrite your life. And their new book is The Grieving Therapist, caring for yourself and your clients when it feels like the end of the world. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Music.